Would you pray with me? So we pause now, Father, after singing those words and, you know, partly just in case sometimes we sing and the words are just coming out of our mouths and our minds are just completely somewhere else. And, and this prayer, the fact that we come and we talk to you is yet another declaration of, of what we just sang, that we need you. Father, we need you this morning. I, I need you to come. My words are not sufficient. Only your word is. And so you need to open our eyes that we can see wondrous things from your word. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you this morning as a preacher these people sitting in front of me and on a live stream need you, Father. They need your spirit to turn up the ground of their hearts and their minds so the seeds can be planted now and can go down deep. We need you to stop the evil one from coming and snatching away the seed. And instead, we need you to water the ground so that it would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Father, we need you and we are so glad that you are a God who so richly and happily supplies every need of ours according to your riches in Messiah Jesus who sits in the heavens now, glorified now and forever. There is no need that you cannot meet here this morning. And we are so very grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good to be here with you guys this morning. How we doing? Y'all doing all right? All right. Well, open your Bibles with me because we're going to open this book where we find life and everything we need for faith and practice. Open this book to Romans. Romans chapter 9, please, this morning. Romans chapter 9. We're in a study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We've gathered together around this communication that comes from God himself through his messenger. And I'd like you, I, I do this often with y'all, I'm gonna do it again this morning. I need you to put your imagination hats on this morning. And I want you to imagine with me, close your eyes if it would help. Imagine with me that first group of men and women that were gathered around this letter. Okay, so imagine, you've entered into a small dwelling in the city of Rome in the winter of AD 57. Phoebe is there. She's been reading Paul's letter to those who've gathered to hear this important message from this man who has had such an impact in recent years, traveling across the Mediterranean world, moving in this Mediterranean world that wraps itself around the Mediterranean Sea from what is now called Italy all the way around the Middle East to the northern coast of Africa. And you're in this small little dwelling in which is a gathering made up of Jews who have received Paul's good news, understanding that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah and the only way to salvation. And an even greater number in this little gathering are non-Jews. Those who have understood that Paul's message points to Jesus, 
to whom they should give their loyalty and allegiance and worship as their true Savior and Master as opposed to Caesar who is long claimed to be the divine Savior and Master of their souls. And together, these Jews and non-Jews, are you with me? Are you imagining? They have studied Paul's good news. They have seen how it reveals God's righteousness. You remember our one-sentence summary of Romans? The Apostle Paul's good news reveals the righteousness of God, brightly displayed against the dark backdrop of human evil, failure, and sin, which rightly demands God's judgment and wrath. That was Romans 1 to 4. They've, They've reveled and rejoiced together in the solution to such a deeply ingrained problem, how this good news creates a new humanity through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Messiah, and that this new humanity is merely the first step in what will be a global and permanent restoration when this same Jesus will bring a new heavens and a new earth fully instituting his rule and reign for Jew and Gentile alike. That's Romans 5 to 8. And, and as these Jews and non-Jews listen with wide-eyed wonder at the story of God unfolding before them, Paul, in a sense, sitting with them in the circle as Phoebe reads his words to them, they hear Paul's heart and anguish as he wrestles with God's plan as he wrestles with God's plan of salvation, as he struggles to understand God's purpose. Listen to this paraphrase of his anguished words. You need to know that I carry with me at all times a huge sorrow. Imagine this. Ever been a part of a community group? And someone starts to speak and they start to unburden their heart in this little circle. So Paul's doing right now. Okay, you're, you're there. You're hearing his words through Phoebe. I have this enormous pain deep within me, and I'm never free of it. I'm not exaggerating. Messiah and the Holy Spirit are my witnesses. It's the Israelites, you see. If, if there were any way that I could be cursed by the Messiah so that they could be blessed by him, I'd do it in a minute. They're my family I grew up with them. They had everything going for them. Family, glory, covenants, revelation, promises. To say nothing of being the race that produced the Messiah, Jesus, who is God over everything, always, yes! (laughs) And those in the gathering, and well, let's be honest, us with them, right? This is where I want you to be, the whole sermon. I want you to be imagining yourself in that gathering, eighty fifty seven in Rome, Winter's coming. We sit and listen to these words. I think that we can relate. We know what it's like to see someone that that seemingly had absolutely everything going for them. Who had so much promise. And then they took that wrong turn, right? And their lives ended up in such a bad place. We've all known someone like this. And we wonder where the story went wrong and and how it could be, how God could allow that. I I mean, what is he doing? 
And that's what Paul agonizes over in this moment. And so do the Jews that are gathered round with him in this little circle listening to his words. And he hasn't forgotten the non-Jews. He's going to get to them quite soon, actually. But right now, he's trying to come to terms with how this good news he's been describing and teaching and proclaiming fulfills God's promises to the Israelites. Have you ever been in a community group or led a community group like that? Like, here, I'm, I'm dealing with y'all. I'm going to get to you in a minute. But right now, I'm focused on this issue that you have. And so, Paul continues leading. All right, I want you to imagine that he's leading a little community group. And he's studying with them. And he says this in verse 6. Look in your Bibles now. Romans 9, verse 6. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed Okay, I I need you to keep imagining. I want you to think of something different now. Not Paul in Rome, but I want you to think of Paul sitting in Corinth. And it's probably somewhere around late 56 AD. And he himself now, as he writes this, I think he's imagining what we were just imagining. I think he's imagining that little group in Rome. And they're going to be receiving these words. And I think... He would want to respond to them. Listen, listen, I am devastated that some of my brothers and sisters, my family, have not believed in Jesus as the Messiah and are outside. And in that unbelief, they are outside the promise of God. But I am comforted by the fact that this does not call his promise into question and that it therefore does not call him into question. You see, it's not as though the word, the promise of God, has fallen. Fallen. It's a very important word that our, our CSB translate, translates Paul's original word into failed, which is true enough. And yet the word means quite literally to fall from some point. Imagine withered flowers falling to the ground or, or imagine being drift, like drifting off or, or being blown off course to, to fall away. And here's what I think Paul is on about. You you see, he's been telling us the whole story of what God is up to in the world to save humanity from the clutches of their fallenness into sin. There's a story of redemption that God's been speaking into reality through Paul. It's a story that began with a very particular people from whom would come the Savior of all humanity. And as Paul has been recounting that story in his letter to these Roman believers gathered, at this point in the telling of the story, it would be reasonable for them to think that God's story has drifted off course, that it's run aground, that it has stumbled and fallen as the Jews themselves have stumbled and fallen. And Paul understands how those listening in Rome could think that, that they could come to that conclusion because he's thought the same thing. His heart is broken over Israelite fallenness. And I think he himself has wrestled with what God is up to. He's had his own questions and his own doubts and he's come to some conclusions as a result of that wrestling. Conclusions that he now wants to share with them. Paul continues, verse 6. You see, dear friends, the word of God has not fallen because, here's why, 
Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, hear Paul now. Paul says, make sure that you've carefully listened to and recall the story that God's been telling all along so that you read it right and understand him aright the best you can. Anyway, I mean, because he's God after all, so we're doing our best here. But what we know from the story is that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Okay, now, says Paul, I, I know you may be thinking, okay, Paul, you're not making any sense now. That, that's like saying not all Swedes are Swedes or not all Germans are Germans. W- what are you on about, Paul? Well, stick with me, Paul answers. You see, we all know that there is an ethnic Israel. We get that. Israelites are a race of people brought about by the decree of God. But if you'll think about it for just a moment, we've really known all along that nestled away inside this ethnic Israel is, well, let's, let's call it a true Israel. Let's call it a spiritual Israel. Remember, that was what I was thinking about at the start of my letter when I wrote to you that a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. That it's not the cut of the knife on your foreskin that makes you a Jew, but the mark of God on your heart by the Spirit that makes you a Jew. A true Jew, if you will. See Romans chapter 2, 28 and following. Okay, Paul continues. Now, I, I imagine that this may have you scratching your head a bit. But turn with me in your Bibles. Now, they wouldn't have had Bibles, but you do. So, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis It's the very beginning of your Bible, if you're not familiar, to Genesis. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can pull a Bible out from under one of the chairs in front of you. Romans 9 is on page 1003. I did not look up what page Genesis is on. But turn to Genesis so that you can see, Paul says, "I, I want you to see where I'm getting this from which he's instructing us, right? Like It's good, we gotta look in our Bibles and see. Go to Genesis 16. Genesis 16. Now, says Paul, I know you're going to remember the story of Abram and Sarai. I mean, this is where it all began. This is our story. Abram is the one to whom the original promise of God was given, that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him, blessed through his seed, his sperm, which would result in offspring, who would be God's people, But in the story, says Paul, do you remember, Sarai was having trouble having children, which means right at the outset, the story could drift off into nothingness. It could run aground. It could fall before it even gets going. And so the couple, (laughs) in response to that, tries to do the work themselves. They try to make God's promises come true. Why? Because they were doubting what he was up to. They weren't trusting him to do what he said. And so they conspire for Abram to give seed to Hagar, an Egyptian slave of Sarai. And Hagar gives birth to offspring, a son named Ishmael. Now, Paul goes on. Jump ahead a bit to Genesis 18. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18. Do you remember this bit, he says? It's a really good story, but let me give you the highlights. Yahweh apparently appears to Abraham, his name's been changed now at this point, among three visitors. 
probably angels of some sort. And Abraham gets Sarah, her name's been changed too, to prepare a meal. And they share it under a tree together. Listen in on their conversation, Genesis 18, verse 9. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked to Abraham. Well, there in the tent, he answered. Yahweh said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Narrative note, Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. <laughs> when she, Sarah's going to have a son. I'm going to come back in a year. <laughs> That's a good one. After I am worn out, anybody feeling Sarah this morning? And oh, and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But Yahweh asked Abraham, <laughs> hearing Sarah laugh in the tent behind him, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. Okay, quickly now, says Paul, still leading our little community group here in Rome. Jump ahead to Genesis 21. Genesis 21, verse 1. <laughs> here it is. Yahweh came to Sarah as he had said. Let me step out of Paul for a second. Y'all, it is so important when you're reading. This is part of why I, it's okay if you don't bring a paper Bible. It, it is. It's okay. I don't even feel guilty about that. But if you bring a paper Bible, now you can circle Genesis 18. And then in the margin, you can write Genesis 21, 1. So you should make connections in your Bible and write notes in your Bible. So you see those connections next time around. And when you put it in, there's something about writing it down that actually gets it in your head a little bit better. And you're going to remember, Yahweh said something. Where did he fulfill that? Genesis 21. He came just as he had said. He keeps his promise. And Yahweh did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. You like how they keep pointing that out? At the appointed time, God had told him he would. Not just like at the time when he said it would happen. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, not Hagar, Isaac. Abraham was a hundred years old when his, Isaac's son, his, his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And now everyone who hears will laugh with me. Isaac meaning a Hebrew word that sounds like laughter. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Who would have said a thing like that? And yet, here I am. I have borne a son for him in his old 
age. Okay, now jump down to verse 12 in Genesis 21 to see what all this means in God's keeping the story moving forward. It's not stumbling, it's moving forward. Just after Hagar and Ishmael had been sent away, God says to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your seed is going to be traced through Isaac. There it is, says Paul. Do you see now what I mean? That not all Israel is Israel. This was true at the very beginning of the story that God has been weaving. For, now look at Romans, get your fingers hopefully in Romans 9. For, here's what he said, Romans 9, interpreting Genesis. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, his seed will be traced through Isaac. Let me explain it further for you. It is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the seed. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Are you following me? Asks Paul. Israelite identity was never racially determined by sexual transmission. Rather, it was God determined by promise. And that promise was that he would return and despite all odds, despite the impossibility of it, by God's power, God's grace, God's divine action and intervention in a barren womb that had brought forth nothing and in spite of their old age and good as dead bodies, there would be a child. A child of promise from whom would come children of promise. So let's take in where we are thus far, says Paul. God's word has not fallen away because God promised Abraham a son and when the time came for a choice, God confirmed his earlier promise about Isaac with the result that ethnicity has basically nothing to do with belonging to the people of God. Now, maybe you're wondering, continues the apostle, if physical descent ethnicity has nothing to do with belonging to the children of God in accord with the promises, as shocking as that is for you Jews in the room. Again, to you non-Jews, I know that this is actually good news, but I'm going to get to you in just a bit. If ethnicity has nothing to do with belonging to the children of God in accord with the promises, then what does? I mean, how is this still keeping the story together and moving along instead of running aground? How does this reality provide any comfort for us in light of those Jews who are not believing? Hold with me now, says Paul. Stay in the story. Don't take, you didn't take your finger out of Genesis, did you? I hope not because we're going back. Because after Sarah dies and as Abraham is on death's door, He makes sure that Isaac gets himself a wife. And her name, I know you know the story, but bear with me, says Paul. Her name is Rebecca. And do you know what's fascinating, he asks? History is repeating itself. Isaac and Rebecca are in their 40s, and the line of promise is again in danger because they can't seem to have any children. Sadly, another womb is barren. And nothing will come forth. So how is... How is Abraham's seed going to be traced through Isaac if Isaac's seed can bear no fruit? Look at Genesis 25, directs Paul. Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 25. And look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was childless. 
Yahweh was receptive to his prayer. And his wife, Rebecca, conceived. But the children inside of her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to her, Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and they will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger, which is not how it worked in Israelite culture. Do you see, asks Paul, I know that some of you were thinking as regards Isaac. See, he, know, he knows that there were some Jews thinking, okay, we get the choice of Isaac. I mean, Ishmael wasn't ever true Israel. His mother was an Egyptian after all. He was really kind of a half-descendant of Abraham, so that's why he was certainly out. The promise couldn't have continued through him, so it makes sense. Of course it continued through Isaac. But you're not following how true Israel is determined, not by ethnicity, but simply in God's gracious and God's sovereign call. You see, Paul points out, it wasn't, look at, look at Romans, jump back to Romans now. Romans 9.10. It wasn't only that, that little bit that I told you, I have more, it's not my only line of evidence, I have more. But also Rebecca, when she conceived children in one act of intercourse with Isaac, our ancestor, and in a single moment of conception of the twins. And before we get to what God said to her, make sure you're recognizing this, says Paul, that before her sons had, done, had been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Do do you see what I said, says Paul? All of this has been about God's purposes in telling the story. That his purpose, according to what he decrees and elects, will stand and not fall. It won't drift away. The story won't run aground. It's not going to crash against the rocks of human indecision, fallibility, moral failure, right? (laughs) Do you think that he chose Jacob because Jacob was a good guy? Keep reading the story, right? He's a cheat. He's a liar. He's a crook. He's not really, in that sense, any better than Esau. I mean, it's all pretty sordid and disappointing how both of these two operate. But God's story and God's purposes will not fall. He is bringing about salvation for the world through Abraham's seed, through Israelites, through the Messiah. Do you see it, asks Paul. God has always intended that some of Abraham's progeny would carry his saving purposes forward. It had nothing to do with merit, but only and always with divine purpose. What counts is grace, not race. The story all along, says Paul, was about a pruning down and a pruning down and a pruning down of Israel to one completely and utterly true Israelite who was of divine descent, a perfect son, 
fully obedient, sinless, and pure, through whom all the promises of God could flow to every Jew and non-Jew so that all who believe in Jesus Messiah could be nestled inside of this true Israel that is a part of the larger ethnic Israel, a multi-ethnic forgiven family of Abraham's children. (laughs) I imagine Paul saying, I hope this helps, dear friends, my Jewish friends. I know it helps me. It comforts me to know that God's purpose according to election may stand. It doesn't answer all of my questions, and I'm sure it doesn't answer all of yours either. It's why we need to keep studying together, I imagine him saying to this little community group. I have over two chapters yet to explain this further. See, friends, family, Chapter 9, verse 7, all the way to chapter 11, verse 32, is an explanation of chapter 9, verse 6. He's just going to keep on unpacking it for us. And says, Paul, I haven't forgotten you non-Jews yet and what God is up to with you, but that's for another study. It's for another Sunday morning. Well, that was all for Rome in the winter of 57 or so. So, what about us? Those gathered virtually in this little Bible study with Paul in Salida, nearing the winter of 2023, to which some of you say, oh no. Some of us saw the snow on the mountaintops and rejoiced. Some of us maybe shed a little tear. What should we say then, Romans 9, 14? What should we say about God and his story and his word for us in chapter 9, verse 6 to 13. One of the things I love about the fall season is that new rhythms begin, right? For many of us, new rhythms begin. For example, family night at Grace. It was such a joy this last Wednesday to get a quick bite to eat at 5.15 at this free meal that was provided, tacos and Mexican rice and salad and, and uh, snickerdoodle cookies. I mean, so good. And to eat that down really quick and then just kind of flit like a butterfly from table to table and group to group of all of these people that are a part of Grace Family, the people that I just love and to get to catch up with people and talk with people and then, and then to move at 6 p.m., towards uh, the new course seminar that began this last Wednesday night on systematic theology where about 35 or so of us gathered just on the other side of that wall up there in the, in the mezzanine to do what exactly? Well, to do theology, which means, right? Theology means to study God, And to do that, to do theology, we learned means being utterly focused on Scripture, on on the Bible, and then applying it to every single area of our lives. Because doctrine derived from Scripture about God, who He is and what He's up to, that matters. Doctrine matters, family. Theology matters to every single one of us. That's one of the reasons that I gave for why we were having, why we are having a core seminar on systematic theology. Because it matters. 
And I'll tell you what I said this last Wednesday night for why doctrine matters. It matters because we can't just make up what we think about God. We can't just make up what we think he is like. We can't just imagine that he would approve this or that. We don't get to do that. If we did, you know what would happen? God would look a lot like us. And you see, we're not meant to shrink God down into our categories. We're not. That we, we, can, we can inadvertently make that mistake. We, in trying to understand him fully, which isn't a bad thing, sometimes we, we want to kind of stuff him in a box of our categories and our understanding. And he won't always be easily understandable, family. Paul himself is clear on that. Do you know what he's going to say after two and a half more chapters of unpacking just one statement in chapter 9, verse 6? Do you think where he's going is that he's going to say, now see there, we've got him figured out. We've got him all figured out. There's God. No, that's not what he's going to say. Turn to Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of Yahweh? Who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid from God? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, dear family, part of what studying the scriptures does is make sure that our view of God is in alignment with who he actually says he is. And what he is actually doing in relationship to our lives and the world around us. That's what Paul is on about in this study of Romans, is he not? He's wrestling and helping and teaching and sharing. And wrapped up in that very pursuit and study is the realization that sometimes we will not understand what God is up to. It may be even painful to hear about what he's up to. Isn't that the case for Paul? He's agonizing. Over what? The unbelief of those he deeply loves, which means the judgment of those he deeply loves, which means he's agonizing over the plans and purposes of God. And here's what's remarkable. At the very same time, at the exact same time that he's agonizing over the plans and purposes of God, he's taking comfort in the truth that what God has done in his story is made it perfectly plain that his purpose is not a hit or miss thing dependent on what we do or don't do but a sure thing determined by his decision flowing steadily from his initiative and instead of seeing this whole situation as a glass half empty Paul sees it as a glass half full and now I do too You see, does my heart hurt for those around us who don't know God or see Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior that they need? Yes, it does. But I know that I want it to ache even more. 
Has my heart been crushed by those who have slipped from this life, who have died without ever knowing him? Many times. Do I fully understand God's purpose and ways in that? No, I don't. Do I wish that all could be saved? Yes, I do. But do I think that his story has somehow fallen? No, I don't. And can I rejoice in the story that some are chosen and some are rejected? Can I rejoice in that? Well, yes, actually, I can. And do you know how? Because I look at my life and I am absolutely stunned by the mercy of God. I am stunned and overwhelmed by the grace of God in my life. That before I had done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election might stand and not by any works that I could do to get myself made a part of true spiritual Israel and only due to the powerful proclamation of the God who calls and brings life out of death. I know that God has said, I know in my heart that he has said to me, you are my beloved son and in you I am well pleased. You see, I understand from the Apostle Paul's good news in his letter to the Romans and to Salidans that God does not hesitate to show his wrath and to flex his power or to withhold the riches of his glory. He does not hesitate to do that. But, and this is crucial, but to that picture we must add that he is inscrutably merciful. Do you know what inscrutable means? <laughs> do you? means I don't understand. I can't figure out. And what we can't figure out is, why is he so doggone merciful to people like us? And we get to this point, and so often we hear something like, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and what do we do? We go, why does he hate Esau? Well, what a nasty old God he is. See, I knew he's been crabby ever since the Old Testament wiping people out and getting rid of them and creating vessels for wrath. And man, you know, he's just, I don't like this God. Instead of saying, no, whoa, 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 time out. He loves you, which ought to stun you. And by the time you get to chapter nine, see, this is why we get me. You know how I say read ahead in Romans? I need to say read behind we got to go back to chapters 1 through 8 because we're in danger of having this kind of taste left in our mouth like Esau hated and vessels of wrath when, when what we've already seen is God's kindness, forbearance, and patience that are meant to lead people to repentance, Romans 2.4, that he justifies the ungodly, Romans 4.4, that while people were sinners and enemies, the Messiah died to reconcile them, Romans 5.8-10, that God offers the gift of eternal life in Messiah Jesus, Romans 6.23, that he rescues the most wretched of persons from the body of death, Romans 7.25, that he did not spare his own son, but said, him forth as a sin offering, Romans 8, 3, and 32. And we are going to see that God shows mercy to covenant people even after they worship a golden calf, Romans chapter 9, verse 15, that he has prepared, yes, objects of wrath who may yet become objects. 
objects of mercy because of his forbearance. Romans 9, 22 to 23 and 11, 30 to 31. In fact, Paul is going to say in the climax of this section that God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Romans eleven thirty two. These are not always easy things to understand. And they take time and wrestling. But that's a good thing, family. (laughs) Oh, I want you to see it as a good thing. Like Gideon there and work in the Bible. Paul is forcing us to look at the story and to develop a deep theology so that we can grasp just how big God is. (laughs) Salida does not need a puny made in their own image God. And neither do we. She doesn't need a fully graspable God, an easily placed in the box of our own finitude and understanding kind of God. Don't, Don't fall into the temptation of trying to shrink him down. Like you can just be put in your pocket and you can just kind of walk along on your merry way. Salida needs a God whose wisdom and knowledge are deep and rich, whose judgments are unsearchable and whose ways are untraceable, who doesn't look to us for counsel because whose mind is unable to be fully known because he is God. That's, yes? Okay. He's a big God, which means we have to see him as big God. Worship team, would you come up? Salida needs a God like that, like Paul is giving us. Seen through the lens of his mercy and grace. Listen to the old writer, John Barclay. The purposes of God for which we'll be studying the next two and a half chapters. And by the way, if you have questions as you're reading ahead, would you email them to me, please? Or if you have my phone number, text me. Or if you see me, ask me. Someone else is probably asking them. I may miss a really good question that you have of the text when I'm reading the text that I don't ask and then I don't help you. Let's ask. Let's wrestle about these purposes of God. The purposes of God are reducible to his will. A will that initially appears equally set to harden or to save. But turns out, on closer inspection, when we look closely at that, and in the end, to harden only in order to save, to hate only in order to love, to consign all to disobedience, only in order to have mercy on all. And what has twisted Paul's theology into this strange shape is his understanding of a gift that has redefined the meanings of grace and mercy and defies a full explanation or rationale. And that gift is the Messiah event which reconciled the world while we were enemies, Romans 5, and justified the ungodly. (laughs) Which, we said this on Wednesday night too. It may be if our shallow is worship, it's because 
our theology is to, excuse me, maybe that if our worship is shallow, it's because our theology is shallow. If we don't have a, a deep, wide, big view of God, that will directly impact our worship. But if we have a deep, wide, big view of God like this, we're going to worship our tails off. We're going to sing and praise. This, this foundation that Paul is giving us is the essence of worship. To say in the spirit of Psalm 115, not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. If you had any part in your salvation at all, if it was due to your work, then fine. Go ahead, toot your horn, and write songs about you. But what a comfort that your salvation is not up to you. Because I mean, really, really now, can we all be honest about our track record for good decisions, good works, reliable behavior? Can we be honest about that? Thank God that our salvation is due entirely to his grace and not our race or works or effort or denominational affiliation or social class, economic position or anything else. It is only in his initiative, will, power, and choosing. And so doesn't it make sense to humbly worship, praise, and adore Jesus? Through every battle, through every heartache, through every circumstance, I believe that you are my fortress, you are my portion, you are my hiding place. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe in who? Who is that? That's Jesus, right? And to worship now the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit by the name and grace of Jesus is merely a rehearsal for doing that forever and ever and ever <laughs> because he's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Do you agree? Okay, well, get on with it. 